he goes, I think I can see him at the end of the bed. So I rang an ambulance straight away and I said, I think he's dead at the end of the bed. Hi, everybody. Just to let you know that we do touch on the topic of domestic violence in this episode. If that's a concern to you, then switch off now. Also, it saddens me that I have to say this because to me, it's really obvious, but I'm not a doctor. Our guest is not a doctor. We discuss medical stuff because she's got a lot of medical stuff going on. If you've got medical stuff going on, go see someone that knows what they're talking about, which would be your GP or a specialist, not us. Don't take medical advice from us. That's all I have to say. Okay, let's get into it. Today's guest is a multi-award winning professional artist, a teacher, an author, a publisher, a cancer survivor, an MS warrior, a domestic violence survivor, a mum of two, grandmother of seven and queen of resilience. And I am exhausted just reading that. Episode 109, Justine Martin. The One Moment Please podcast. Yeah. Hi, Justine. Hi, Fiona. When I was hearing your story, I just couldn't believe how incredible you are and that you are the picture of resilience because not only do you have MS, you've got three different types of primary cancers, you've had heart surgeries, sort of the list goes on. You're absolutely incredible. And I, I just, I'm, I'm excited to hear more about your story because I just can't, I can't understand how you were so positive about life considering all the, all the drama you've sort of been through for the last 13 years. Tell me how it all started. Well, it started in 2010. Well, probably, look, it started before that. You know, when people ask about my story, my mum had MS. So I've grown up with MS my, nearly my whole entire life. Um, I was around about nine when she got MS. But let's even wind back further than that. So I was around about three and a half when my mum was diagnosed with breast cancer in 1974, which wow. is a long, long time ago. Um, and she was 27 years of age. So she was one of the youngest in Victoria at that time to survive having breast cancer. And yeah, because it was sort of a death sentence then, wasn't it? Yeah, look, it was. Yeah. And she had this lump sticking out of her breast that was the size of a golf ball. So she was very, very lucky to live. And we were shipped off to my grandparents' interstate for around about six months till mum was well enough to look after us again. And she had a full mastectomy done. So, you know, we were thrown into... Um, adversity at such a young age, my brother and I, my brother being 10 months and three weeks younger than me, and there's a story there as well, but we won't go into that one today. Um, you can read <laughs> that in my book. And then, you know, mum got sick when I was nine, turning 10 and was diagnosed with the MS then. Um, so all through my childhood she was ill. And then as a teenager, she got diagnosed with cervical cancer and then I was 26 when she passed away from complications from MS. Uh, so, you know, there was a lot of adversity throughout my life and it was a case of you either sunk or you swam and you learned mm. how to deal with it. So then when I got sick in 2010, 
um, and then I was diagnosed with MS. It's like, oh, this is a little bit of deja vu, you know. Mum went through this, now I'm going through this. My brother went off to the army. My son went off to the army. Um, my dad walked out. My fiancé left. Um, so history was really repeating itself. Mum didn't have heart surgeries, however, I went through heart surgeries in 2013, 14 and 15. Um, but I made a conscious... Were they, related, were they related to your MS? No, they were related to the cancers, which in turn right. were related to the MS from the disease-modifying therapy drugs that they had me on. Yeah. So maybe let's start in terms of your first diagnosis, which was MS. Yeah. So that was 13 years ago. Now, what what technically is MS? Because I'm aware that it's an issue with the... The sheath of the nerve, the, the outside so, lining? Yeah, that's yep. right. So MS is a degenerative incurable disease at this stage and it affects the myelin sheath, which is the coating around the outside of the nerves. And the nerves are in your central nervous system, so in your brain and your spine and then they branch, it branches out and controls everything in your body. So MS attacks that myelin sheath around the nerve and it stops the message from getting through. So you could go to pick up a glass of water. Your brain is telling your hand to pick up that glass of water, but the message stops. So think of an electrical cord and when it's frayed around the outside of the electrical cord and the message doesn't go through to turn the kettle on. All right, so same kind of thing. Um, well, that's the closest way to, to try and not, not the explain same it. Kind of thing, but explain it. Um, so that was in, uh, I, I, look, I started getting sick in 2010, but when I look back on, on my life, there were instances of it years, you know, a decade or so way before that time took place. Um, what were the symptoms that you were that you can now recognise were sim- symptoms? symptoms? So back then, um, what took me into the doctors in around about August 2010 was that my vision had gone blurry and it was like someone had smeared Vaseline across my eyes and that had happened in 2002 and I put it down to wearing mascara and eyeliner, a bit of an allergy in 2002, but I wasn't wearing mascara and eyeliner in 2010 and it's like, oh, I've had this before. And then I couldn't lift my left arm up above my head. I had this excruciating nerve pain in my left arm And I'm like, hang on, I've had this before. I had it in 2007, but I thought I'd injured my bicep in 2011, uh, 2007, sorry, um, competing um, in weightlifting in New Zealand um, in the World Championships, but I wasn't competing um, or doing much training. I was still training, but I hadn't done anything to really aggravate it um, in 2010. And it's like, well, you know, I've had this before. And just various things throughout the year, you know, a niggle here, a niggle there, and it's, you know, my feet would sometimes be on fire, like really bad, burning on fire and bad nerve pain. And um, But it was my vision in 2010 that led me to the doctor and 
It, MS is really difficult to diagnose. There's no simple tests that you go in or they do a blood test or they put you in a machine and say, oh, yeah, you've got MS. Um, I wish it was that easy, but it's not. So you can now have an MRI. When my mum was diagnosed, they put her in a hot bath. And because, yeah, so 90% of people who have MS are heat affected. So, and she was heat affected. So they'd pop her, popped her in a hot bath and then tried to make a walk afterwards. And she couldn't. Whereas um, me, I'm not heat affected. I'm cold affected. So my neurologist, after I was diagnosed, told us to move from Perth to a cold climate. So we moved over to Victoria. And I'm the ten in the 10 percentile that's cold affected and I've moved to one of the coldest states of Australia. So uh, anyway, you live and learn. It's all right. I'm in Hobart. So, you know. Oh, I feel I- your pain. <laughs> I said to I said to my husband because we we've only just recently moved from Victoria. I said I want a warmer climate, so he went around Australia and ended up in Hobart. <laughs> How does that work? I mean, I'd love to go on a holiday to Antarctica, but God, I don't think I'd experience much of it at all. I mean, I love the snow, but yeah, no. Nah. I just, I'm in too much pain, absolutely too much pain. Um, I've so got, it's a physical pain that the cold causes you? Yeah. Right. My, okay. All my muscles just spasm. Um, I fatigue out because I'm trying to keep warm. I don't, my body just doesn't keep warm um, at all. I don't regulate body temperature. So people who are heat affected can't cool down, whereas I can't warm up and I just fatigue out. So I'm tired all the way through winter. Um, I defrost in summer and my son lives in Townsville. So I always go up to Townsville and just defrost through winter and try and spend, you know, a good couple of weeks up there and um, just love it and then come back here and go, oh, it's so cold. Would you ever permanently move? Uh, I can't now permanently move. Um, I probably look can't. I don't like that word. My mum always said to me, there's no such word as can't. I've moved across Australia twice, Fiona. For me to move permanently, that's a tough one. I've got a daughter that lives around the corner and my community and network is really, really strong here now and it's taken me a long time to fit into the community here. My businesses are primarily based here in Geelong. Um, I now have clients up in Townsville as well. So when I go up there, it's not a holiday. I'm working while I'm there as well. But um, my medical team is here and I have Uh, an amazing medical team. And first and foremost, that's what I have to think about. And it's not just, oh, yeah, you know, find a GP. If you know, I would find a neurologist, a cardiologist, a hematologist, a neurophysiotherapist, a neuropilates teacher, uh, the chiropractor, a podiatrist, um, my counselor. Um, who else have I got on my list? So, you know, there's a really big, oh my gynecologist, um, there's a really big team that you know, supports me, you know, my, yeah, my NDIS support coordinator, like 
there's a big team that sits behind me, just, you know, a medical team. Um, for me to pack up and just go, no, it's not as It's not as easy as others. No, no. You know, and like I said, I have moved across the country twice and I I know how easy, you know, that is easy and I say that in brackets. Not, yeah. Um, And it's not easy. And when, you know, I've moved across the country with only knowing a small amount of family when I moved from, well, when I moved from Gleninus to Perth, I only knew the guy that I was moving in with, but. I was able to work and I met people through work. When we moved from Perth to here, I only knew a very small family of about half a dozen people and that was it. And because I didn't work, um, how do you go and make new friends? And I joined a community um, art program And I was 41 years of age and I was the youngest by about 30 years because everyone my age was still working. So my friends were in their 70s um, and I saw them three hours a week and I looked at the walls the rest of the time. I took my daughter to school. I went back six hours later and I picked her up. Um, And so it was really, really, really hard, really, Mm. really, really, really hard. Um, and then my fiance walked out on me. He was still, um, yeah. he he moved us over here. It was his suggestion to come over for family support. And um, we'd been here 11 months and he turned around and said, you having MS would affect my goals and dreams in life. See you later. I'm moving back to Perth. Mind you, he was having an affair with his boss and he moved straight in with his boss. So, but he did me a favour. You know, at the time, all right, let's get this straight. At the time I hit rock bottom, my whole world crashed and I was fully financially dependent on him. He was still working in the mines in WA, so he was a FIFO worker and he was earning too much money for us to get Centrelink. And I'm not going to go, oh, you know, oh, poor me, but you got to realise I couldn't work anymore according to my neurologist. And when I was diagnosed, he said, oh, you know, you can't work anymore because of my cognitive impairments. Um, I can't count properly anymore. I'm better now than what I was. My brain has reparked a little a little bit, but I still can't handle um, money and work out change and all of that. And I was a program director for Jenny Craig and I can't multitask um, like I like a female brain can. I've now got a man's brain. I know what it's like, guys that are listening, and I I really feel for you because are well, you giving them excuses? <laughs> no, there's a huge Fiona. There's a huge difference. I'm telling you now, huge difference. And so, what he should have told me was that you can't work in the profession that you're in, you're going to have to retrain and do something different. But he didn't. He said to me, you can't work anymore. Go and find a hobby. Um, And I'd always wanted to learn how to paint. So, you know, that is another story in itself. It took me about four months to walk through our art studio door with anxiety. But 
So we moved over here and he, yeah, said me having MS would affect his goals and dreams and he left. And when he left, so did our financial support. And here Mm. I was, a disabled woman with a 15-year-old daughter. Centrelink wouldn't even put me on a disability pension at that stage. It took them four months to put me on a pension and we lived on $200 a week. The only good thing that he still did was paid the rent um, because he was worried about getting blacklisted at that stage um, until I got my pension through and then we had to move out of that house that we were in. Um, but we lived on food bank. I had to swallow my pride. I had to feed my daughter and I had to go um, and get handouts for it. It was horrific. And I just started going further down that black hole for that period of time until my cousin said to me, uh, a distant cousin said to me, oh, you need to get off your pity party. What I was actually going through wasn't a pity party. I was grieving and I was grieving big time for when I was with him, he wouldn't talk about the MS. We had to treat it like an ostrich in the sand and pretend that it wasn't there. When he was away working, I could talk about it to anyone, but if he was there, we just had to pretend that it, that it wasn't. So I never got the opportunity when he was around to actually grieve the life that I had lost. Mm. And I never, when he left, I grieved the relationship that I thought that we had. Now, we were under contract to buy a house. He walked out and left everything on my shoulders. I had to get us out of the contract of buying a house. We had finance on a vehicle that we could barely afford and he wanted me to take over the payments. He maxed out my credit card that I was in $13,000 debt, couldn't pay for it, had no money to put food on the table. I was in a right royal mess and she's telling me to get off my pity party. How did you call yourself out of that? Through art. Really? Yeah. So I joined the MS Social Support Day program and I was still in the Senior Sits program as well. Um, And I started entering exhibitions um, and people kept saying, oh, you're really good. You know, this artwork's really, really good. You need to enter exhibitions. So I did. And with my previous experience with work and everything that I'd done in my life, I knew I had to market myself. And how was I going to market myself? Exhibitions. That was the cheapest way I could think about doing it and win some awards. So I entered able-bodied awards and I entered disability awards and I started winning. And then all of a sudden I had some credibility behind me. I did market stalls. I dragged my daughter with me. We'd get up at some ungodly hour on a Sunday morning and we went and did market stalls and I started selling artwork. My auntie's a graphic artist. She helped me with my artwork design greeting cards and I got cheap greeting cards made up and I put them everywhere. 
whoever would stock them, I put them up and I registered Just Art in 2013 and I sat on that business for a long time and then opportunities started coming my way because I was out there doing it and um, I've never hid the fact that I'm disabled. Um, it's not something that I would say that I'm proud of um, but it is not ashamed of I'm not ashamed of it no not at all mm. um I'm not happy that I've got MS I don't like that I've got MS but I've accepted that I've got MS and so many people so Christina Applegate is a classic example mm. at the moment um and I penned an article for Mamma Mia about 15 months ago about Selma Blair Christina Applegate and myself that the the dangers of celebrities in getting up there and voicing their journeys she's still she's going through the process of grief with her diagnosis and she's still at that angry stage and she might sit at that angry stage for a very long time who knows but she turned around and said she'll never accept it now that's her. and you're getting this from you're getting is this from interviews that she's done yeah yeah, yeah the interviews okay. that she's done. And and look, that's and that's quoted from her. Um and that's her journey. But when you accept something in that's happened to you, it makes yeah. it then easier to deal with other things. Now you mentioned to me that, you know, I'm so positive. I still have some negative days, but they'll be a day, they're not a month, a year or a decade. All right, I get shitty. Don't you worry about that. If you look at my live stream on Monday from the hospital, what happened to me at an appointment, I went off in the car. I've had I've had a few people on the podcast that have had um uh ish, health issues and one of the main things in terms of the um uh, that comes out of every conversation is how much a you have to advocate for yourself and oh, b you have to you have to control the yep. team around you. Yep. So if you're not happy with someone, then you've got to go out and find someone else again, like to yep. to give you the type of care that you want and deserve. But it's really hard to have to do that when you're when you're in pain and you feel like shit. Yeah, it is. And look, I went through the public system with my cancer journey, and I couldn't bolt it at all. Um, until probably the last 18 months. And then so what happened at Christmas was um, my appointments got changed and I was in on the 23rd of December and it was a late afternoon appointment. Again, I think it was around about 3 o'clock in the afternoon my appointment was and I sat there and I always take my iPad in and do some work. I'm writing a book at the moment and um, so I sit there and I write and I've looked around. I thought oh, I was quite quiet in here. And so you always go to reception and check in and give them your name. And most of the girls know me in there because I've been going in there since 2016. So it's a long time to be going to the cancer centre. And um, I've looked around. I went, oh, I'm the only one in here now. And, you know, didn't think too much of it. Tick, tick, tick. And then it was about 10 to 5. Um, and the, the receptionist comes up who I didn't know and she goes, oh, what's your name? And I went, oh, Justine Martin. And she goes, oh, thanks. I said, you've forgotten about me, haven't you? 
oh, no, 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 no. And I went, I'm the only one here and it's 10 to 5 and I've been waiting nearly two hours. You've forgotten about me. Oh, no, 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 the doctor won't be long. Then he went to, then he goes, oh, um, so why were you on uh, bendamustine? And I'm like, because I had cancer, because I had chronic lymphocystic leukaemia and small lymphocystic lymphoma. Oh, why were you on this? Why were you on that? And I thought, you didn't even read my file when I walked in, before I walked in. And then he wrote me up my blood slip for the next one and he goes, oh, be sure that, you know, Helen has you next time. And I looked at the blood slip and I, slips and I went, you haven't got a flow symmetry test on here. Oh, you don't need that. I said, if you bother to have a look at all my blood tests, I said, you will see that I always have a flow symmetry test on every single one. Oh, oh, okay then. So then he wrote up the flow symmetry. I went, oh, my God, exactly. If you do not advocate for yourself and if you do not know what tests that you regularly have and check before you walk out that doctor's surgery, then, you know, who's looking after you? Because mm. they're so understaffed that mistakes are happening. Mm. It's, it's yeah, it's it's interesting, and I I um I don't know what the solution is for that. I think that they just have to be more cognizant of it. But oh, well, I'm I've sorry that you had that experience, Justine. Health. I've got private health, and um I've got to go and have uh my vagina fixed. So through domestic violence, and I made an appointment back with my GP and I could not get into the gynecologist for two months. I went in this morning uh, to see the gynecologist and uh, showed him um, and he goes, that urgently needs to be fixed. I can get you in next Tuesday and I've got to have a general anaesthetic next Tuesday um, for it to be fixed. But even with private health insurance, I'm still out of pocket $2,000, Fiona. Yeah, I. It's, it's not, it's all very well to be like all oh, Medicare, but Medicare is only really available for people that are either on, um, either on, uh, what's the, the, what's the card that you get if you're on the, the healthcare the card? Doll- yeah, but this is the thing. So like my head. No, I- not the healthcare card. What's the one that you get when you like on the pension or on the doll? Yeah, pension. Yeah. Healthcare cards. So oh, like, a okay. pension card. So I've, I had a, a pension card, um, or you can have a healthcare card, but so with my arm, I'll tell you this now. So my arm got broken New Year's Eve 2020. Um, in order for it to be fixed, repaired, the cartilage needed to be repaired, they classed it as elective surgery and it took two weeks off two years to wait for that surgery because it was elective surgery and it wasn't an emergency. So let's get back onto your diagnosis because I feel like we've gone down a whinging path in regards to all our ailments. So diagnosed 13 years ago with MS, your uh, fiancé at the time walked out. When did you get diagnosed with cancer? So what happened was uh, so 2013, 14 and 15 had the heart surgeries 
went through all of those, was feeling really good at the end of those, came down to Hobart to compete in Olympic weightlifting in the end of May 2016 in the Masters and the Pan uh, Pan Pacific Masters Games and everything. And I started going purple and had a condition called Lavidio reticularis and I knew that that wasn't right. And so it just started off with my hands first and then it went to my nose, my ears would go black, my chin would go dark purple and, you know, we live in a cold area of the world Um, and I was told that I had to make sure that I had to keep them warm Otherwise, it would cause narcosis and bits would fall off. So basic frostbite. He was giving you frostbite without it being cold enough for frostbite. Yeah, so it was happening at about 13 degrees and then it started happening up around 19 degrees. All right. The average day in Victoria is about 17 degrees most of the year. So then they took me to a, I had to go see a rheumatologist. I had a whole heap of blood work and I had to go to a rheumatologist and he ruled out lupus and rheumatoid arthritis and said, you need to go to a dermatologist to confirm that it is Lavidio. And I was already booked into that a week later. And so by this stage, it was September. Um, so I went to the doctors in the beginning of the June. So now we're already into September because of the wait times. Went to the dermatologist expecting that I might have to have a biopsy on the to confirm that it was Lavidio. She took one look at my feet and my hands. So it was in my feet, my hands and nose and ears by that stage. And she looked and went, yep, it's definitely Lavidio. I don't need to do a biopsy. I then went into a flat spin in my head going, oh, my God. So the rheumatologist said to me, there's three things that can cause um, Lavidio, and that's rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, or lymphoma. So he ruled out those first two. When she confirmed that it was Lavidio, I'm like, oh, my God, I've got lymphoma. She then turned around and said to me, when was the last time you had a skin check done? Now, I'd swap GPs because when I went to my GP in going purple, she said to me, don't worry about it. If it's still happening in three to four months, um, come back and see me. And my counsellor said to me, are you happy with that? And I'm like, no, not really. She goes, I suggest you find a new GP. So I did. Thank goodness I did. And because I wouldn't be here today if I had stuck with her. I didn't have four months. So I, um, she said to me, you know, um, when was the last time you had a skin check? And I went, oh, my former GP did one. She goes, oh, well, you're here now. I was in my bra and undies lying on the table. And um, she goes, we'll do one now. I said, all right, it's cost effective. You know, I'm not going to have to pay for another one. I'm all about being cost effective. Um, the next thing she's like, okay, sit up. So I sat up and she's there with the liquid nitrogen in front of me and she's going, all right, we're just going to burn these ones off on your face. I'm like, what now? So she burnt one off on my cheek and one on my forehead and she goes, I don't like this one on your leg. I think we'll cut that out and do a biopsy. 
And I was spinning out going, I've got lymphoma. Oh, my God, I've got lymphoma. And let her cut the one out of my leg and she goes, don't worry about it. If there's anything to worry about, you'll hear from us. But I'm going away on a conference for 11 days. You probably won't hear from us. And I walked out of there going, I've got lymphoma. Oh, my gosh. What now? What do I do now? Now, I knew that I had a hematologist appointment coming up um, at the beginning of October. Um, So that was the next step. Less than 24 hours later, I got a phone call back from the nurse at the dermatologist ringing me to tell me that I had melanoma. And I'm like, I've got what? Now, I won't swear on the podcast, but I can assure you that I sweared. I swore quite a lot. Poor nurse. I'm like, no, 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 no. I don't have melanoma. I've got lymphoma. You've got it wrong. You've got the wrong cancer. I've got lymphoma, not melanoma. No, no, no. You've actually got melanoma, just saying you're going to have to come back in and have more of your leg cut out. We've got you booked in next week. So I had to go back in the following week and have a big chunk of my leg cut away. They got it all, had a leg full of stitches, and then the following week I went into the cancer centre and I had my first meeting um, appointment then with the cancer doctor. By that stage I was struggling to breathe um, and I was losing mobility in my fingers and my feet. So. Um, I then had to have a bone marrow biopsy, um, three days before, no, two days before I was to fly to Bali. It was all booked, paid for, trip of a lifetime, never been on a holiday like that ever, couldn't go. Had a biopsy, bone marrow biopsy and a PET scan and a CAT scan on the Thursday, was flying out on the Saturday for a girlfriend's 50th couldn't get on the plane. I was in too much pain. Um, she tagged me in every post in Bali. It was her 50th. I understand why, but it was gut-wrenching for me not being able to go. Came back. She would have thought she was doing the right thing and including you. Yeah, yeah, but it wasn't. It was just, it, yeah, it was gut-wrenching. Anyway, Um it came back from that bone marrow biopsy that I had lymphoma, but they didn't know what type. Who knew there were so many different types? Um, no. I didn't know. Um, then it came back. Um, so I got to the point where I could barely breathe and couldn't bend my fingers and couldn't bend my toes by the December. And it came back that I had mixed cryoglobulinemia. So all my internal organs were being choked off and I was dying. Then in uh, mid-January 2017, I got diagnosed with chronic lymphocystic leukaemia and small lymphocystic lymphoma, as well as still having the mixed cryoglobulinemia and the lividia reticularis. Now, it wasn't a And the melanoma. Well, the melanoma had been cut out by that stage, right. but I did have all of them at the same time um, before they cut the melanoma out. Um, so it wasn't a simple case of, okay, we're going to start you on chemo tomorrow. I was on some pretty heavy MS disease-modifying therapy drugs or on a drug. Um that takes two years to naturally come out of your system. So I didn't have two years. 
I didn't have six months. I was stage four um, when they diagnosed me. So what they had to do was a chemical flush. I had to take this vile liquid three times a day, um, which would then bind to the medication in my small intestines that would or stomach and stop it being reabsorbed into my small intestines, something like that, and then I'd poop it out. Um, it was toxic. It was horrible um, doing it all. And then I then I could start chemo. Then I started chemo in so that was February. Then they waited a few more weeks, and then I'm pretty sure I started it in the March, um, early March around my birthday. Then I got a major allergic reaction from the first round. Who knew that you could be allergic to chemo? Um, so I was oh, pretty on... toxic. I would have thought that it would be more likely than not. Yeah, well, I was on a chemo called bendamustine, which is a derivative of the mustard gas from World War One. My son thought it was great since he was in the army that mum was taking mustard gas. Um, so what happened was with the mustard, with the bendamustine and the rituximab that they had had me on, was it tripled my levels of cryoglobiums which gave me another rash of um gave me a chemical blister rash from head to toe and gave me um another rash for the cryoglobiums as well so I had three different rashes going on on my body and got rushed back into emergency with it and I was a real mess so when they diagnosed me with the cancer, I mean, I can joke about this now. I mean, I've always, you know, been a larger person, larger frame, struggled with my weight because of the lipedema. I'm like, yes, once in my life I'm going to be thin. You know, I was trying to look for the positive side of all of this. Yes, I'm going to be thin through chemo. No, not me. Uh-uh. They then have to give me large doses of of steroids because of the reaction that I was having to it all, and I put on 20 kilos, as you do. But, hey, it was either put on 20 kilos or die. All right, I'll put on 20 kilos and I'll deal with that uh, when I go into remission. So, And I did. I went into remission um, uh, towards the end of 2018. Um, uh, so that was a very, very good good day when I found out that I was in remission. Um, it's come back. It came back oh. in, um, when did it come back? 2022 after I had, um, after I was vaccinated um, and had COVID for the first time, it came back. So I'm now not allowed at this stage any more vaccines um, because they just compromise my immune system so much and change. They wipe out too many of my good cells, which allow the bad cells to repopulate. And that's what cancer is, it's just the bad cells. And there's this magic line that when the cancer, when the bad cells go over that magic line, it's active. But, you know, I still have cancer cells in me. I have those bad cells in me. They're just under a line that they then class as um, not active. Everyone so, has bad cells in them. 
everyone has right. grey cells in them. It's just when they go over this magic line, all of a sudden, um, you've got cancer. That magic line's the difference between being remission and active in cancer. Yeah. Pretty much. That's the that's probably the most simplest way to describe it. I mean, other people yeah. will say, oh, no, that's not right. But in layman's terms, yeah. And so what – I'm just so sorry to hear that, Justine, that you've got cancer back. What, what oh, cancer no, is it that you've got back? It's back in remission. Well, good. Yeah, so I fluctuate with it. So I have to be extremely careful, Fiona, on my lifestyle. Yeah. Uh, extremely careful and, you know, careful on what I eat, how much sleep I have, my exercise, getting COVID again. I've had COVID three times and every time I get it, my cell levels change. They change. Yeah. I've only had three, um, three vaccines. I'm not allowed to have any more. So I've just got to be careful and all my all my friends and family know that if they're sick, they can't come near me. I have to treat myself like I'm still um, uh, on chemo. I'm still, I, I have a very low immune system. Um, I'm leukopenic all the time. What does um, that mean? I don't make enough white blood cells to fight infections. I'm right. on SCIG therapy, so subcutaneous intragram. I give myself an infusion every week and I have done so since of what? March 2020 of other people's antibodies. So if you're a blood donor, I personally thank you for keeping us alive. Um, it's, a pro- it's a product um, a byproduct from blood. So not everyone just gets the red stuff. Some of us get the other stuff. Is it, plas- is no, it plasma? It's plasma? No, it's so it's the they they separate out the white blood cells specifically, yeah, and they pull them all right. together. And um, it took me a while, Fiona, to get my head around that I was getting yeah. other people's bits in me, um, regular in me. And I'll tell you off air how I got my head around that one. Um, <laughs> but you can imagine. Um, on that, uh, on the bottle, right, this is how, like, on the bottle that they come in these jars and I've got to draw them up and I hook them up to these, put them into my belly or my legs and I hook it up to a pump. It says human on the jars. Well, you don't want animals, so you kind of. Oh, no, I'm sure I they have, have the I same have. thing for vets, so you want to make sure that they're giving no, you the right one. I've had products, like a lot of the um, MS drugs are in serums that are either from pigs or cows or serums like, yeah, you'll be amazed what the, the base of some of this stuff is. So I've had stuff from animals. That's fine because we eat animals all the time, unless you're vegan. But to have on the jar human, and then you—that's fine. I think we've lost all. We lost all the men at the vagina talk. Now we've lost all the vegans. So you're fine. Just edit all that out, Fiona. 
You'll be going, well, why did I get her on? Oh, no, Justin, happy. So, so, okay, so you have to, how did you get over that, having to inject yourself? Was that weird to have to get over? Um, so I've had to inject myself before and I've had to get my husband to do it because I couldn't do it. So I, could, I like, didn't have just... anyone to do it for me. and it So you just had to. Well, here's the thing. You either inject yourself or you die. Yeah, it's a pretty big it's, reason to get over like, it. So I was having IVIG. So I was having it um, going into the cancer centre once a month and they were doing it through IV um, and then COVID hit and they didn't want us going in the hospital and we didn't want to be, I didn't want to be around people. You know, what if I got COVID? That was before the vaccines and everything as well. What if I got COVID? I was petrified that with no immune system, I, you know, I was one of those people that um, without any of the vaccines and the there were no antivirals back then as well, how sick was I going to get and what was what was going to be the long-term repercussions of me getting COVID? Um, so it was a case of, okay, I've got to learn how to do this. I mean, I'm full of piercings. Like I've got nose piercings, ear piercings, you know, barely done it, you know, you name it, I'm full of piercings. But, yeah, to actually inject yourself is a different thing, whereas now I'm like plunk, 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 draw it up, do it up, put it in, whack, sit there, type away at my book or book work or do my invoicing, watch telly, do it. The one who used to freak was my daughter. See, you know, I, I was on back in 2011 when I was diagnosed with MS, I was on an injectable back then. Um, so, you know, I used to have to shoot up back in 2011 with Capaxone, but it was in a little machine that you just used to have to hook up like a bit like a diabetes one, um, and do it that way. This is only subcutaneous as well. So this doesn't go into, this is not a muscle one. So this just, you've got plenty of fat, it's fine, but I'm, I'm finding now, cause you know, I'm four years into it that. It is painful. Like I did it last night and I've still got the big welts. They're about that big and they're like golf balls under the skin until it dissipates into the fat. And I had blood going everywhere last night again. Sometimes it'll do that. Sometimes my body just doesn't like it. It's like, okay, well, put the Band-Aids on and we'll deal with it tomorrow. But it means, Fiona, that by me doing those infusions every week, it's like a little bit of cotton wool around me that I can go to a networking event like I did tonight. It means that I can go and see a client. Just gives me that little bit. If I get an infection and like I said, I've had COVID another couple of times that I do have those antibodies in my blood, although they're someone else's, lots of other people's that I have got something there to fight those infections. I go on well, probably, I don't know, about eight, ten lots of antibiotics a year. It's a lot. It is a, it is a lot. And what I've actually, from having COVID the first time, I've now got mast cell activation syndrome. I'm histamine intolerant. I don't produce DOA in my blood. Um, so there's so much so much food I can't have. I haven't had a cup of coffee in 32 years 
alcohol I'm not meant to drink and I'm going pretty well this year. I haven't had a cup of uh, – I haven't had any alcohol in 52 days, um, not even socially. And I'm only a social drinker anyway. I can't have aged meat, aged uh, – like no dairy, no vinegars, sauces, anything like you're, that. You're at the point of almost being on that line diet thing. Well, I'm on a low histamine diet. But in being on a low histamine diet, it actually benefits the MS because because it's anti-inflammatory. They're anti-inflammatory, and you know people people say to me all the time, "Oh, you don't look your age," and I'm like, "Oh, thanks. It's all the formaldehyde that I've been given." They're like, "What?" Because I like to joke around with people. Like some formaldehyde. But, you know, I haven't had a cup of coffee in 32 years and I don't drink dairy. I haven't had dairy since I was 15 because they give me migraines. And, um, you know, I'm I'm wheat intolerant. I can eat gluten but it makes me very ill and gluten causes inflammation in your body and MS is inf- inflammation around your nerves. And wheat also sends off the histamine in my body. And I end up with massive sinus pain from having histamine. So um, in order to not live on antihistamines, I change my diet. Simple. I just just live on the antihistamines. (laughs) Well, last year, you know, every time I wanted a drink, it was like, okay, dose up on some antihistamines before I had a glass of vodka and soda water because there's nothing else I can mix with it. Because I can't have orange juice. That gives me migraines. No citrus. Can't have strawberries because they make my throat itchy. Um, Do they? Do you have a latex allergy? Pardon? Yeah, no latex. Mm. You got a latex allergy? Yeah, and I'll tell you. That'll be the strawberries. Yep. And I was in hospital. uh, I found out in 2018 that I've got one leg shorter than the other. 12 mil, right, and forgot to put my wedge in my shoe after the chiropractor, like, totally did my back and couldn't get out to go to the toilet. So they put a catheter in me and at 2 o'clock in the morning, 3 o'clock in the morning, I was screaming in agony for them to take this catheter out because it was burning me. And I said to them, what's the catheter made of? Oh, we don't know. And I'm like, I'm telling you now, it's a latex catheter. No, no, it wouldn't be, wouldn't be. I'm like, you need to look at the box. It's a latex catheter and you're blistering me on the inside. And it was a latex catheter. That's appalling. Yeah. How long and ago was that? 2018. Yeah, so no latex, there are a lot, no latex condoms. So if I'm, you know, being permiscuous, um, there you go. We just lost all the old grandmas. Um you know, I don't have anyone left at the end of the conversation. Probably you and I. Um, I have to make sure I've got my own condoms in my bag if I want to be promiscuous because I can't rely on, on you know, anyone else. Um, yeah. I've got to take my own latex Well, that's life. just being responsible anyway. So. Well, everyone should be. But, um, yeah, you know, thank God that they now make latex-free products and even – even just examinations like today um, at the gynae, when he put his gloves on, it's like, I'm allergic to latex. 
That's okay. Ours are latex free. Okay, cool. Thanks. Yeah. Go yeah. in the hospital. I have it, to make sure I take my own food. Because you, you'll have the um, – you, if you're allergic to strawberries, you sound like you're like me and have the latex food sensitivity. Um, I, are you aware of that? I can't – yeah. I can't eat anything that the hospital supplies. Avocado? Do you react to avocado? No, I'm okay. I have to be careful. Well, I don't, don't have a- histamine dump. Do you know what histamine dump is? No. Right. So every single food that you eat has a histamine level. Mm. All right. So some are low, some are medium, and some are high. So things like bananas are high, strawberries are high, seafood's high, vinegar's high, alcohol's high. Bacon, aged meat, sulfates are high, red wine's the worst. Um, so if I'm going to have, say I was going to have a glass of red wine, a glass of red wine, I'd have to make sure that I wasn't going to have with it aged cheese. Or- so it's interesting that you say that because I've now got to the point where I, I just don't, I, it just makes me so hot. Like I can't, I can't drink. Yeah. Um, so have a look at histamine um, intolerance and then go go one further and have a look at mast cell activation syndrome. And mast cell activation syndrome is actually a symptom of long COVID. Now, I've had long COVID from that first COVID experience. See, I reckon I, reckon I got all this because I became anaphylactic to bees. Yeah. And none of the doctors are saying that there's any correlation to it, but then all of my allergies ramped up after I became anaphylactic to bees. That's a mast cell activation syndrome. Yeah. Okay. Um, Not that I'm a doctor, anyone who's listening out there, but mast cell activation syndrome is not something that people actually really know about either. Mm. And it is also an uncommon symptom of MS. So it's a double whammy in my case from it. But since I've changed my diet and I really, like I cooked the other night, um, so I had a client over and she wants to learn how to cook. And I said, well, what do you want to cook? And she goes, I want to learn how to make lasagna. And I make a really wicked lasagna. And I've not had lasagna in 18 months. Why? Because it's got lactose in it. It's got wheat in it. It's got tomatoes in it. And they're all things that Juzzy cannot tolerate. All right. So I made we made this lasagna on Sunday night and sometimes I just go, bugger it, I want to eat it. So I ate it and I was sick for two days. I woke up on Monday and my face was on fire. I have had a cooked belly ever since eating it. Did it taste good? Oh, my God, yes. Are there leftovers in the fridge? Yep. Have I touched them? Nope. Will I touch them? Nope. My daughter's in tomorrow working. Uh, they're for her lunch tomorrow. She'll love me because her husband hates lasagna and so she'll be like, oh, I get to eat lasagna. It also had chorizo sausage in there and I can't eat, not meant to eat chorizo sausage. So, you know. I've just I, lost all the Italians now. <laughs> I try and follow like an 80-20 rule. 
in there's no re- there's no recipe that you could follow that had chorizo sausage in a I, lasagna. I can't go to an Italian re- restaurant because yeah, it just it all makes me really really sick. But you know, it also proved to me okay. Well, I still can't eat this food. Yeah, still, sometimes food. you need the reminder. Yeah, but how many people, Fiona, are eating foods and feel terrible all the time, but it's and just don't know way about it. Life? I yeah, know. Yeah. And people say to me all the time, oh, you have so much energy. You, you know, you have so much energy all the time. How do you get everything done? I don't get the lull in energy because I'm not eating sugar. I know. Yeah. I don't eat lollies. I don't eat a lot of fruit either. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm, I'm the same. I'm I've come off. I'm I've come off food. sugar. Yeah. I've come off sugar as well. And I've found that. Like I just don't get that afternoon slump. Well, I don't – I can't eat chocolate. I haven't eaten chocolate since I was 15, 16. I get a massive – That's a bridge too far. That's a bridge too far. Easter – look, Easter's probably the hardest for me um, because I can't have chocolate and I can't eat a lot of gluten-free foods either because I can't have exanthem gum or xylitol. Xylitol's really bad. That's Ooh, the fake yeah. sugar stuff, isn't it? Um, yeah, it puts me on the toilet. Yeah. Oh, well, that's probably information that I might want to um, edit out. Oh. But Well, no, because there will be other people that don't realise. And just because it's gluten-free, people, does not mean that it's healthy for you. Mm. Everyone needs to do their own research, not medical advice. That's right. Yeah, they do. Um, read the labels. And if it's got lots of numbers on the packet, don't eat it. I don't eat food that, I don't eat much food that comes out of a packet anymore. Mm. You know, and then when I do look at the labels, it's like, well, this has very few numbers on it, if any at all. Do you even shy away from processed meat? Like I'm talking like oh, no, minutes. eat Oh, mince. Um, I don't eat much mince um, at all. Um, I had a bit of chicken mince a couple of weeks ago and that was yummy. But um, I will tend to eat um, chicken breast or fillet steak and I don't eat much meat either. Like my meat consumption has come right, right back. My portion size. So what are you eating then? Just mostly vegetables? Salad veggies at the moment and a piece of meat the size of the palm of my hand. But here's the thing. I can't buy meat that's on sale. Yeah, because it's already too aged. It's too aged. I'm not meant to eat meat that I've cooked and left in the fridge. Mm. So it becomes very difficult. But now that... You know, I took it all right back to the basics and I'm slowly introducing stuff. I can eat meat that is cooked um, within that 24-hour period. But any longer than that, the histamine level goes up. Seafood's still a bit of an issue. Seafood's very, very high in histamine, hence why a lot of people have allergies to seafood because it's the histamine in it. So. Prawns, I love prawns. I love prawns, but the face paint's not worth it. 
They don't make my throat itchy. Cannabis oil makes my throat itchy because of the coconut oil that it is in. I'm on prescription cannabis oil, by the way, not illegal cannabis oil. Let me stipulate that one uh, for the MS nerve. They put, coco- they put coconut oil in it. Yeah. And what's with the coconut? Is it the late, is it, what's, why coconut irritating you? There's just something in it. Mm. Yeah. Watermelon is the same. Mm. Yeah. Socks. So pretty much the only fruits that I can have, um, I can do um, the odd nectarine, the odd peach um, at this time of the year. Um, I'm not meant to have grapes, but I'll grab a few of those. Um, apples, pears. Mm. Um, mm. But, I, you know, I can eat something one day and then the next day I go to have it and go, ooh, that hasn't sat well at all or my throat's itchy um, with it. But I haven't gone onto the stage of having anaphylactic from it yet. Tell me what happened in 2020. 22, you had a situation where you found, unfortunately, your partner. Yeah, so I um, put myself back out into the dating world after the domestic violence in 2020 and, you know, it was brave of me to do that. Yeah, very. I, I wanted to take my power back, Fiona. I figured the longer that I I stayed hidden away, the more power I was still giving to him, even though I had stopped all communication from him, that was still giving him power. So I put myself back out there and um, I met Dean and um, he was a lovely man, um, got on with my whole family, he, yeah, he he wanted to move in. I'm like, no, no, you're not moving in. Uh, you moved down the road. And he did. He moved five minutes away. And um, I'm like, we're dating. We're doing the old-fashioned dating, moving down there. And we were together about eight, nine months. And he'd tell me all the time that he loved me. And I nearly came close to telling him that I loved him the night before he died. And he, um, about a month before he died, um, he had was complaining that he was short of breath and he went off to the doctors and um, the doctor um, sent him for some bloods and a chest X-ray. Um, but I'm not sure that he actually went ahead and did that, a man being a man. Um, he had surgery two weeks before he died uh, on his elbow. Um, he was here at 9.30 on that Monday night and the Tuesday morning he was supposed to be taking my son-in-law to Melbourne. They were going in um, for an appointment at um, quarter past seven that morning and he was joking with my son-in-law about don't you be late because Dean was always on time um, for things and he um, he didn't turn up. And at 20 past, 22 past seven, my son-in-law 
rang me and said, Dean's not here. He's not answering his phone. I'm like, all right, I'll get out of bed and um, go and see, uh, you know, I'll call him. So I tried calling him and there was no answer and I said, I'll get in the car and go out there and see. And um, the bedroom light was on and I was calling out to him but I couldn't get inside. So I rang Matt and I went, I'm coming to get you. Something doesn't feel right. And I said, you're going to have to get me inside. And Deanie had a massive dog, Nyla. She was 56, 57 kilos. She was a big dog. And she knew me. I'd looked after her. Um, Dean had been away and I'd looked after her for a week. So she knew. And every time Dean came over, Nyla came over with her. And um, Dean had the side gate locked. And we'd always... Dean kept saying, oh, I've got to get you a key. And I'm like, yeah, you do. But we never got around to him getting me a key. And um, Matt tried breaking the side gate and because he had padlock on it because of Nyla. And there was a lady over the road who was in her garage and Matt ran over. That's right, Matt could see through. The blind was open about that much because of my vision I couldn't see in the room and Matt could see him. He goes, I think I can see him at the end of the bed. So I rang an ambulance straight away and I said, I think he's dead at the end of the bed. And they sent an ambulance. Meanwhile, Matt ran over the road and grabbed a screwdriver and broke the padlock and so he jumped the gate, broke the padlock and I went around and and the back door was unlocked and I called Nyla and um, she come running up to me and I got her outside and I went inside and was calling his name and I knew, I knew instantly and I went in the bedroom and here he was lying on the floor and he'd been dead um, a couple of hours um, and he didn't like the cold either um, he had his heater up on 24, which unfortunately had sped up um, rigor mortis. Um, from what I could gather, um, he got up and had his shower. He probably He set his alarm at 5.30 um, and I remember saying to him, he said, I'm going to get up at 5.30. I'm like, why are you getting up that early for when you're not leaving till you know, quarter past seven? Oh, you know, I'll get up and have breakfast and take Nyla for a walk and have a shower. And he'd got up and he'd had a shower and he had a fresh pair of jeans on and socks on but didn't have a top on. And where I found him, I reckon he was walking back to his phone to call an ambulance and I found him with his hand on his chest and um, it was horrific, absolutely horrific. And he had scratches on his face and that was from Nyla trying to, because um, I thought, how have you scratched yourself? What did you hit on the way down? Because he was wedged between the bed and the wall. And, um, you know, later I thought, you know, how have you scratched yourself? And then it was, no, he didn't. Nyla is obviously with He's trying to wake him up. Yeah, her paws were the size mm. of my hands and she's tried to claw him and, and get him up. And it was horrific. And, you know, I, I lost it, you know, as you do and um 
Matt came running in then, you know, locked Nyla out the backyard and came running in and, you know, dragged me off him and um, took me outside. And um, he then went back in to see if he if he had gone um, and then came back out. So it was equally, you know, horrific for my son-in-law. Um, and then the ambulance turned up and then I took him uh, took them back inside and um, they said they had to conduct some tests on him and then um, the coroner turned up um, and they allowed me then time in there and the police turned up and they allowed me, you know, time to sit there um, with him and, and say goodbye. Um, it was hard. Still is. Did you tell him that? Did you tell him that you loved him then? Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah, I did. And how sorry I was for treating him. You know, I'd say to you know, we'd look after my grandkids, and I'd say to my grandkids, "Oh, nanny loves you. I love you." And he'd sit there and say, "I can't wait for you to say that to me one day." And I'd be like, "Well, don't hold your breath," because I was so damaged and scarred from what the guy previously had done to me. And here he was, hanging in hope, not going anywhere, waiting for me to tell him that. He knew. He knew that I loved him. Um, and it was, it was really, 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 really tough, really tough. And then... Um, all his daughter and his sister and his parents lived in Sydney and Newcastle and the police said, oh, you know, we can tell them. And I went, no, this is not something that should come from a stranger. This is something that I need to do for my, you know, my last thing to him. So I... um picked up the phone and I called his sister and had to tell her and it was gut-wrenching yeah so his funeral was in um Sydney but um so he went off to the coroner and the coroner didn't release his body for four weeks oh wow and it took um two three days off 12 months to get the coroner's report as to uh, his cause of death. And so for that 12-month period, which only came back in uh, August last year, um, which was quite ironic because he didn't want me to go to Bali. I was booked to go to Bali again for my next trip to Bali. So I hadn't been to Bali since... um, I hadn't ever been to Bali. Remember the first time it got wiped out because of yeah. um, my um, cancer diagnosis. Yeah, and so my girlfriend and I were going to go to Bali for. We were going to Melbourne for a weekend away. Then we were going to go to Cairns for a weekend away, and we decided to go to Bali for four days. And Dean kept saying, "You can't go. Something's going to go wrong. I can feel something's going to go wrong." And I'm like, "Don't be stupid. Nothing's going to go wrong. I'm going to be fine." Well, something went wrong. He died the day before. And I then didn't want to go and his sister and my daughter and my best friend are all like, you need to go. You can't do anything here. 
So we then got to the airport the next day. My daughter and best friend packed my bags. I um, was standing at the airport. We got the text message to board the plane and Jetstar cancelled the flight. We went back the next morning. They put us up in hotel rooms and blah, blah, blah. And we went back the next morning and we finally got to Bali. So that was on the Thursday. But we only had then the Thursday night, the Friday night, the Saturday night, and we flew home the red eye on the Sunday night. And I cried my way around Bali. So then I went back to Bali in April last year, uh, August last year, and I didn't want to be in the country the day that he died. Um, He was cremated in Sydney. Um, I'm not sure where he is now. I don't know if his daughter's got him or if his parents have him or where he is. I don't have anywhere to grieve for him, so that's been really but you Do you still have their details? Could you ring them and ask them? I do, but it's it's touchy as well. I drive past where he died on the odd occasion um, when I feel the pull, I suppose you could say. it. I used to drive past quite often and then someone moved in there. I'm like, oh, that's really tough now. Um, he helped me make a six-metre long dash hound on my side fence. Um, and so that's kind of my spot now to feel connected. Um, I've got one of his aftershaves. <laughs> um, if I feel like a hug, I spray it on a dressing gown, I'll pop that dressing gown on. I have to forewarn my daughter, which is something that I hadn't done one day. And, um, I had the aftershave on and she's walked in and she's like, mum, I can smell Dean. I'm like, oh yeah, it's on my it's on my dressing gown. My son-in-law um got a lot of his clothes. We all went to the funeral. Both my daughter and son-in-law got tattoos in his honor. Like he made such a huge An impact. Yeah. To like the whole family. Such, you know, just a really genuine nice guy and that was evident at his funeral as well Mm. um so you know he restored my faith in men that there are still some good ones out there um that they're not all narcissistic sociopathic narcissistic horrible um men and you know there are a lot of good ones out there yeah and look I will once I get you know the JJ all sorted out um I there we go we lost the rest um I will I will um put myself back out there at some point when the time's right but you know I get told as well Fiona oh you know by men oh you're so intimidating and I sat there one day and I thought no, I'm not. You're just intimidated. There's a difference. It's that's that's when they're that's that's the type of um uh we'll call them man, men, but that's a type of man that you don't want in your life. You know, like you, you they need been. to be able to. Pardon. I've had that type of man in my life. No more. No more. You need. I think. I think that. I think we've all had those type of men in our life. Yeah. And I think that 
I think that I, I, you either, when you have a strong personality, it does it's not a negative thing. It just means that you need someone that's strong as well to be able to handle that, and that's usually more of an alpha type personality. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And um, I mean, was it you that I was talking to today? I can't remember. Like my brain gets fried. On um, we were talking about. Was it you was talking to about being Goldie Horn's quote? Goldie Horn's yes. yes, that was me. So Goldie's Horn quote, everybody. I heard this when I was very young. It was when she was being interviewed on on Oprah, and I've never forgotten it. And she she was she was being asked why she wasn't married. She was just in a long term relationship um, with what's his face. I can't remember Russell. his name now. Um, Kurt Russell. Kurt Russell, and um, she said it's because y- you have a man in your life or a partner in your life to compliment you, not to complete you. Yeah. And I don't feel the need to be completed. And that's where you need to get to it in life and then have your partner that's going to be able to compliment you. And you like, that's just there. If men can't handle a uh, woman with a strong personality, it just means that they've got insecurities they've got to work on. Yeah. And I was, look, I was, you don't have time I, for that. <laughs> Next. Well, well, this was the thing I was chatting. Men, listen up. Don't yeah. try and beat a woman down into the personality. You're just going to work on your own insecurities. Yeah. It'll make you more intra- attractive. And don't prejudge either. Like I was chatting to a guy online, not on Bumble, not so long ago. And um, I'm like, oh, look, just Google me. Probably the wrong thing to say. Oh, that's such an, that's an arrogant thing to say. No, just no, Google just, me. Just Google me. He goes, oh, what do you do? And I'm like, oh, my God. And um, I'm like, oh, just Google me. Just, you know, jokingly, just Google me. And um, anyway, he goes, oh, yeah, I've done that. You're too busy for a relationship. And I've sort of read. And I'm like, how dare you presume anything about me? How dare you presume that I don't have time? If this is what you're like before a relationship, I really would hate to be in a relationship with you. Well, I think that he's probably then projecting. This is my non-psycho, well, I am psycho, but non-shrink brain. I just think he's projecting in terms of he probably wants someone at his beck and call and that's not you. Yeah, that's right. And and the thing is as well, like I have filled my life at the moment so I'm not sitting around moping going, oh, why me? Poor yeah. me. I don't have a man in my life at the moment. I'm just and gonna you, you also said me and wait for someone to come into my life. No, my life is busy. I am so happy mm. that I can move anything around in my life. I can make time into the future. Yeah, what I'm the right person. I'm the right person. Yeah, at the moment, like if I was to meet someone, I'm away for, you know, a lot of March. So it's a little bit tricky. But going forward, okay, if I was to meet someone, all right, well, then going forward, okay, well, how much time do you want to spend? Let's book that in then. I know that sounds funny. Let's book that in. But it means that, all right. I'm going to spend quality time with someone and this time now there's boundaries. This time I don't then book in podcasts at 9 o'clock on a Wednesday night. Do you think that the the situation with your, uh, which is unfortunate in regards to your past relationship ending how it did, mm-hmm. but do you think that it's 
created a space for you to be more transparent with people in your life and tell them how you feel rather than holding back? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, that's probably the, the biggest regret was never telling him that I loved him. Yeah. Well, you, you did, you just. I did in my own way, you know, I did in my own way. I cook him dinner and, you know, we, we spent a lot of time together. Um, See, I made time for him. A lot of time together and we'd go out and I miss going to the movies with him. You know, we did lots of stuff, walks along the beach, you know, all that kind of stuff with the dogs. His dog, my dog, yin and yang. Um, You can imagine. You would now tell, you would now tell someone. He's healed that part of you from the relationship before and it's created a space that you would not hold that back from the next person. For the right person. Yeah. Yeah. And with, I've done a lot of work on myself in, um, I was brought up with a narcissistic mother and so therefore, and no self-worth and not feeling that I'm good enough. So therefore I've, I've attracted the wrong men into my life over a long uh. period of time. So when my arm got broken, it was like, um, and I've had domestic violent relationships prior to that one as well. Um, it's like, what's the common denominator in all these relationships? Me. So what needs to change? Me. I need to go and do the work on all of this. So I've had to learn how to parent myself. I've had to learn how to put boundaries in place because I grew up without boundaries. Because remember that my mum became very ill when I was three and a half years of age and I got chipped off to my grandparents. I lived with my grandparents three separate times and there was no, there was no boundaries with her because she was so ill when we were young and she treated my brother differently than what she treated me. So daughters of narcissistic mothers are treated different than sons of narcissistic mothers. So sons can do no wrong and daughters can do no right until teenage years when sons go and get girlfriends and then the mothers hate the girlfriends. And my mother hated my sister-in-law to the point that when my brother got engaged, she refused to go to the engagement party and she ripped up every photo of my sister-in-law and cut them all out of it. She did go to my brother's wedding she was in a well, cut her face out of the photos. Cut her totally out. It cut the photos in half and cut her all out. Oh my goodness! Yeah. Okay, she did go to my brother's wedding, but she didn't have much of a choice because she was in a wheelchair by that stage. Um, she just wheeled her in. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> we oh, we brought her back from Sydney, and yeah, wheeled her in. Um, but yeah, my brother could do no wrong. It was my brother this, my brother that. And, um, like there was one instance where like it was my brother's march out parade from basic training in the army. I was heading off to Goulburn, um, to study music and my mom and Nana and I were on the train. So we we're going from Sydney to, um, Albury and we lived in Gleninus, northern New South Wales, so mum and I had taken the train down that far and then picked up Nan on the train and we were coming down. And my mum pretty much booted me off the train in Goulburn. I knew no one. 
not a person. You know how most parents will make sure that their kids are, you know, comfy at uni and that they're at the right place and will take them to uni and settle them in? No. I got off at the train. That's, I've never known a parent to do that. Is that's that's in America in the movies. I've well, never known off. anybody to do that in Australia. I got off. Well, all my friends, their parents took them to uni and took their stuff to uni for them, and that I didn't. I got dumped off at the train station as the train kept going on the platform. My bags. I didn't know where my bags were. They were on the other side of the platform, and I turned up a day early. And the it wasn't open. And I had to find a taxi. This is pre-mobile phones. We're talking 1990 here. Um, and it was horrific. While well, Meanwhile, my mum kept going down to my brother's march out parade. And that was the way that things were back then. So when you asked about building resilience, that was building resilience it was this I've been in survival mode a lot of my life so um yeah it's just been one thing after another but it shaped the person that I am today um and each adversity that I face something good has always come from it it may and not the person- come from the from the incident at that time but when I look back or I'm trying to find a way out of it. Something good has come from it. And the person that you are now is an author. You're a keynote speaker. You've got your own publishing company. You do uh, coaching as well. Yep. Yep. I do resilience coaching and consulting. So I do consulting in corporate and um, businesses. I do coaching for able-bodied people as well as NDIS coaching. So for someone that is newly Die or is diagnosed with something and it's become disabled and they've got no purpose, they don't know what their purpose is going to be for the rest of their life, I can sit with them and help them and, and work out what they want to do for the rest of their life, um, helping them regain what their purpose actually is. And, and this is from me having lived experience um, with it all. Um, I've got my own publishing business. So for those that want to write their story on any story, whether you're, you know, have a, a memoir, book of poems, whatever it is. Um, I have a writing group that I facilitate as well. Um, we offer scholarships, um, those that go through the writing program. Um, there's so much that we do. I now run seven businesses. Um, last year I won, I've won 15 awards um, been nominated for over 40 since 2021. Last year I won the Geelong Business Leader of the Year Award. Um, I pinch myself every day. Um, I can't wait to ever face that neurologist who told me that I'd never work again um, because, boy, didn't he call it wrong. Justine, it's been an absolute pleasure. For anybody that's wanting to uh, get in touch with you, justinemartin.com.au and I'll put it in the show notes as well. Thanks, Thanks Justine. Okay, let me just stop this. The One Moment Please podcast. Yeah.